Welcome everyone to Idiots with Idioms. I'm Ethan Arsht, uh, joined as always by my co-host and partner in idiocy, Marcello De Giorgi. Today we have a really interesting episode. Today we're looking at Finnish, so the language of Finland, obviously. But before we get into that, I'm going to hand it over to Marcello, who has an idiom of the week. Thank you, Ethan, and welcome everyone. Today I have the perfect idiom to start this episode, which is to break the ice. This idiom has a quite intricate history. We can find it first in 1579 in a translation of Plutarch by Sir Thomas North, with the meaning of uh, opening a path, being an innovator. You know, it was expressing uh, what poets in those days were doing, you know, by breaking the ice. Only in the 17th century, it started to have the actual meaning of, you know, getting people together or getting out of a socially awkward situation. But thanks to the creation of real icebreakers, which uh, happened in the 19th century, so two centuries after the expression was recorded first, it has now this double meaning because icebreaker is also refer to those um, boats that are able to, to actually break the ice. So I, we have officially broken the ice and I pass the word to Ethan for another idiom. Cool icebreaker, Marcello. I can't believe that it actually, the phrase breaking the ice from like a metaphorical perspective predates the ship, the icebreaker. So that's very surprising to me. So I also had a idiom for this week, and this one uh, also has to do with Finnish. And this idiom is an idiom that occurs in Finnish, which is uh, to get your skis crossed. However, normally I would say the idiom also in Finnish, but I am not confident in my ability to pronounce Finnish. Fortunately, there's someone here who can say the idiom in Finnish, so I will hand it over to our guest today, Iris Audre. And Iris, if you wouldn't mind explaining to us a bit about this idiom, to get your skis crossed. Yes, certainly. Thank you, Ethan. So uh, getting your skis crossed, in Finnish we say sukset ristissä, which literally means what it says in English. But what we mean by that, usually it's a relationship between two people who don't get along, who have a disagreement or just for some reason, they just don't manage to communicate very well. So it almost means this kind of crisscrossed communication. And of course, we love snow and skiing. So I guess that's where that's where it partly comes from. And of course, if your skis are crossed, you're not actually able to progress on the, on the path. So in the same way in communication, if you have your skis crossed with somebody, it's a bit of a deadlock situation. You just can't agree on anything. And then you need to find solutions how to move forward. So... In Finland, the skiing is typically cross-country skiing. It's skiing on flat. Yes, yes, yeah. that's that's more typical, and that's where we are much more successful than than slalom, the the downhill skiing, which is done in the Alps and and so on. Yeah. So so with, I guess yeah. So with the Nordic skiing or the cross-country skiing, it's uh, and you cross your skis, you can't go anywhere. But if you're alpine skiing and your skis get crossed, you're going to go flying. Like you are definitely going to fall. So I like how it means something different depending on which type of skiing it refers to. Anyway, I think this is a great idiom. I'm going to start uh, using it, I think. 
Before we go any further, let me remind all of you listening now to subscribe, rate the podcast, and leave a review. Normally, I say this at the end, but this time I'm going to say it at the beginning. And this way, as you listen to the rest of the podcast, you can spend all that time crafting the perfect review. And then right as the podcast ends, you can post it. And as an additional incentive, as if there was any more needed, if you leave an idiom in your review, whether it be negative or positive, we will analyze that idiom and break down the uh, origins and cultural implications of that idiom on a future episode of the show. So you already heard from our guest today, Iris, in addition to being a Finnish speaker, is many other things, and I will let her uh, get into a bit more detail on that. Thank you, Ethan. So indeed, uh, Finnish is my native language. Uh, the past five years I've been living in Brussels, though, so opportunities to use Finnish are, are a bit more limited. Um, originally, I studied Finnish and French translation and interpreting, which gave me quite a nice uh, background in how language works. And then I felt that wasn't enough. So I went to university and um, I studied uh, applied linguistics, where I really looked into how language is used in in practical um, practical situations, for example, doctor's office or online uh, interactions like blogging was very big back in 2012 when I graduated. So um, that's that's kind of what got me interested in languages. And these days I work in communications where, of course, I get to use those elements, but in a much more practical, practical way, which is uh, very rewarding. So you mentioned that you uh, studied translation. And you also were a translator for a little bit, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. Yes, I, I worked uh, at a bank, so very specific uh, type of translating, but very very interesting. Um, there, I worked from um, Finnish to English and English to Finnish. So, can you tell us about translating an idiom, specifically? Like we already did this a little bit. So, with the the skis crossed, like how would you translate that to English if you were trying to? directly or if you were trying to communicate the the semantics of that idiom? That's a really good question because often what you hear in translating is this um, from people who who don't really maybe understand translation. um, They ask, can't you just translate it word for word? But um, we all know that with idioms in particular, that doesn't doesn't really, really work. So with with the skis crossed, um, that can maybe it is like be be at cross with someone or, or not being in terms with someone, it really is much more challenging than just taking that dictionary and, and starting to, to translate it. I'm sure with, when we look more into the Finnish idioms of today, uh, you will notice what I mean. I think about this sometimes when I go to the movies. I live in Brussels, and so when you go to the movies, if you go to an English language movie, the dialogue is typically in remains in English, but with French and Dutch subtitles. Uh, and I speak a bit of French, and I can see that the the subtitles are often like not even close to the literal uh, English. Yeah, I mean that's that's actually a very good point. I, I go to the movies these days so rarely that I f- I forgot that they do this here because in Finland that's the practice. Um, we are a bilingual country. Uh, we don't do the voiceovers except for for children's movies because it's of course quite quite expensive and and to be honest, we probably would. Um, run out of voice actors uh, at one point so we do have the same thing we have 
one line in Finnish, one line in, in Swedish in, in every movie, which is in a foreign language. Um, the thing is, audiovisual translation is a very different field where you have to condense all that is said, but also convey the emotions into a very limited space compared to, for example, literature. So there, um, that's an even a further reason why, why you can see that things seem to be left out or just uh, expressed in a very different way. Iris, you mentioned that uh, Finland is a bi bilingual country. Could you tell us more? Because I didn't know that Swedish was actually a recognized language of, of the country. And uh, from my understanding, they are two different languages. They're not close to each other. Yes, that's absolutely correct. And when I say bilingual, I should actually say trilingual because we also have the Sami languages from Lapland. But Sweden has a Swedish has a special Uh, special special position in in Finland. It's a language that's obligatory for everyone to learn at school. So um, I was 13 when I started studying Swedish. It's also obligatory uh, to complete your university. You have to have certain knowledge of of Swedish. If you want to work in public administration, again, you need to have those uh, skills in Swedish. So it's very different, I feel, from, from Belgium, where Flemish speakers know French, French speakers speak Flemish, but it's still It's still a different level of, of um, intensity. Um, there are, of course, historical reasons why this is. Uh, we belonged to Sweden for a long time before, before being part of Russia, and that's, that's where it stems. Um, it makes Nordic cooperation easier as well. We, we identify as a Nordic country. Um, and of course, if you know Swedish, um, it's easier to understand other languages. Based on Swedish, for example, I can communicate with Norwegian people, which is helpful. And uh, many Swedish speakers, of course, also would understand at least some amount of, of Danish. So you're from the south of Finland. Correct, uh, yes. Do you find that you speak Finnish differently than people from other parts of Finland? Yes, absolutely. My father, for example, comes from, from eastern Finland, and he clearly has uh, a dialect which is very different from myself. I've, I've spent all my, all my life in the south. And um, what we have is kind of a rough classification into Western and Eastern dialects. And then those are further divided into seven different subgroups or, or categories. Um, so there's definitely differences in, in pronunciations of certain words, also meanings of certain words. And I have very little knowledge, for example, of the, the Western uh, side of Finland. So I'm sure if I spoke with someone who has a very heavy dialect, I, I might not be able to understand everything. Does Helsinki, for instance, have any particular lingual traits? Because a lot of times, like, big cities will have their own. Yes, uh, in fact, they do. Yes. And this is um, where these days, uh, especially, you can find this kind of idea that whether you can uh, recognize a, a real real born and bred person from Helsinki, it's, it's, a, it's called Stadinslangi, which literally means city slang. I think it dates back into the early 1900s or late 1800s. And that's again, like a recognizable way of, of talking. Um, I come from the South, but I'm not able to talk in that way because I, I'm not, not uh, from Helsinki, which, which of course is, is, is a different way altogether to, to understand and communicate. Iris, as always, we ask you to prepare three idioms uh, for today's episode. And let's start right away with the first one. I'm going to give it a try. I'm going to show all my courage. Omama mansika muma mustika, which I am sure I mispronounced. Could you please <laughs> tell us how it is and uh, explain 
these idioms to us. You did actually pretty well there. Um, it's it's oma ma mansikka muuma mustikka, and this is my absolute favorite idiom. In English, I found that it's often translated "there's no place like home," but the literal translation of this idiom is "own land strawberry, other land blueberry." which sounds pretty crazy, but it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I actually had to look a little bit into this um, because it's widely used. It's used even in newspapers, in, in articles. So it's it's a common and, and a live idiom, if, if one can say so. The difference uh, there between strawberry and blueberry, first I thought, okay, maybe Finnish people, we're just partial to, to strawberries and prefer them. It's not actually true. It's because um, traditionally, especially in the back in the day when we're talking of the wild strawberries, not these cultivated in the greenhouses, they would grow in fields. And when you had field, you usually had habit- habitation, an area which, which was already lived. Whereas blueberries grow in the forest. And what we have in Finland is this very um, deep-rooted concept of every man's rights. And forest is kind of a shared commodity. It's for everybody, which then that would draw the line. If you had an area where you had strawberry growing, that would mean somebody most likely owned that area. Whereas if you had blueberry, that was some like a shared land, the the other land um, to, that you could enjoy yourself. So yes, this not just because it always makes me think about strawberries and blueberries, it makes me be hungry, but I just find it quite a cute idiom and also quite difficult one to to explain. I have a question. Does does it refer to your home or to your homeland? Um, so it refers to the land that um, you would own or that would be at, at your kind of property. Because back in the day, um, of course, most Finnish people would live quite rurally, quite, uh, it would be, we were an agrarian country for a very long time. So you would cultivate and you would have the fields to, to take care of. So it kind of refers to that whole idea of, of your property and, and your home. But that's actually a very good point because often these days, if um, if I would miss Finland, I would say, Omama Mansika, Muma Musika, and the Muma, which is Musika in my case, would be Belgium, uh, which would give that kind of uh, idea that, okay, it's the whole country as a as a finland but traditionally it refers to a much more limited concept within the country so can you still see the cultural effects of like this idea that unowned space is shared space like do you still find people i guess like sharing the forest space Yes, you definitely would. So we still have the, the everyman's rights. Um, there are, of course, limitations, for example, for hunting or for fishing. You need to have permissions and so on. But technically, you could um, you could use a, a vast range of forests, which we do have a lot, where you could swim in the lakes and, and so on. So it is alive and well. And uh, I haven't heard at least that there would be any plans to, to denounce those rights. And this is a law. This isn't just a, a norm, like this idea that this is like a real right. Right. Yeah, it, it, it's a real thing. It's it's not just something that somebody came up with and was like, "Hey, let's do this uh, as a right." Um, no, it's it's actually um, actually exists um, as a thing. Cool. So the next idiom that we wanted to talk about and that Iris suggested we we talk about it, the English version is "Don't bite off more than you can chew." And the Finnish version, according to Google Translate, and I'll tell you what Google Translate, how Google Translate translates it, and then we'll see how it's actually translated. But the 
uh, Google Translate says, every sixth reaches its juniper cabbage. So the Google Translate version makes no more sense to me than the original finish. So I'll let Iris explain what's going on here. That's, that's a very good uh, practical example why Finnish people can't use Google Translate. Um, it just doesn't understand us. Um, I think the problem is there in Finnish, the words six and spruce are the same word. So I think that's why Google Translate figured it must be a number, but we're actually talking of the tree. Um, so it literally means if you aim for the spruce, you will fall on the juniper. And spruce is, of course, taller um, than a juniper bush. So basically, indeed, if you aim too high, you will fall down, which tells a little bit about the Finnish, perhaps cautious or slightly pessimistic mentality. So again, I can you can see there's a, like, ag- not agricultural, but like natural aspect to this. Do you think there's a reason why these idioms tend towards natural stuff? I think it's partly because nature at least traditionally, has been very important for us. Um, We are a large country with just five and a half million people, uh, which means there's a lot of space per person. And it's quite common that you would have a house in the the city and that you would have another house on the country where you have even more space and lakes and forests and and so on. And it's something we take take pride in. And um, now, of course, I might be wrong, but I believe many of these idioms are fairly fairly old, um, because at least this one, for example, I've heard since since my childhood, so a good three decades. And that, of course, explains even more why why they relate to nature, because nature has been a source of income, um, especially forestry still is very important. But it's also been a place of of calm and place of of not maybe a worship in the sense of of a a religion, but a place to feel calm and a place to feel at peace. Cool. So you mentioned yeah, you said it's a place of a place of calm and that like people tend to feel at peace there. Do you find that you like feel a particular calm in Finland, Iris? Absolutely, I think, because um in Finland, what counts as a big city, for example, Helsinki is around half a million people, and uh, half a million people for a capital city, I I guess for many other countries it sounds pretty ridiculous and like awfully small. For me, Helsinki sounds very large because I come from a town of around 40,000 people. Um, so it definitely has been a big uh, big part of, of my life. And uh, for example, I learned how to swim in a lake, not in a, in a pool. So it's something that I really do miss. Uh, one of the things I miss from Finland. The actual like plants in this idiom, so the, the spruce and the juniper, is there anything of particular like note about these particular is there like something about the choice of trees here are there just a huge number of spruces and junipers in Finland or that's a very very good question very interesting question um there is a lot of spruce so that's uh for the Christmas it's important we're the land of Santa Claus um but we do have mostly pine so juniper isn't that common anymore I think partly it is because of the size difference simply um spruce is is quite a bit taller than a juniper would be but perhaps it's also because both are evergreen. Um, they are green throughout the year, whereas, uh, of course, birch and, and other trees, they will lose their leaves. And, and uh, wintertime in Finland, it, it gets a pretty uh, bare from that perspective. But of course, uh, you would still see the needle, needle trees. So maybe it's because it fits every season, no matter the weather. But what I also was thinking actually related to this is in English, you have the idiom, aim for the moon, 
even if you fall, you land in the stars, which is, of course, much more uplifting, much more optimistic and positive, um, despite being the happiest people on, on, on the planet, according to the United Nations, we really have the slightly more negative, like if you try too hard, you'll fail and, and then you fall, which um, I guess is a bit of a cultural fear we have that uh, we would make a mistake and others would, would uh, laugh at us. Right. Yeah, I think, I think that's a really interesting contrast. I don't know if there are any, we have in English, don't bite off more than you can chew. But I'm trying to think of an equivalent for like, if you aim too high, you're going to end up worse than you were in the first place. And definitely like we, we certainly have more expressions being like, just aim high. Of course, I, I think that I think that you have uh, if you run after two hairs, you you'll catch Schneider, which is yeah. uh, something we don't use that, that one as often though. Perhaps the the real difference is in what you hear used. Like outside of what I'm specifically thinking of idioms or talking about idioms, we don't often get like if you chase after two hairs, you'll catch neither. But you hear shoot for the moon. And if you miss, you'll land on a star, or if you lit, or if you miss, you'll hit a star, or if you miss, you'll land on a cloud. Like you hear that all the time. Yeah, you're, you're quite an optimistic people. We we, we learned that Finnish uh, aren't. <laughs> are, are, are there are there any other examples of you know always expecting the worst? And if you have a theory, why is that? I think it's partly deeply rooted in our in our culture. So if you think about us geographically, we're squeezed between two, two powerful countries, especially at the, at the time, Sweden was a very big uh, player. Um, and then of course we have Russia on the other side, which possibly has made us feel a bit like, okay, better wait for the bad things to happen. So we won't, uh, won't get too, too disappointed. And, and that's honestly, um, I recognize this thinking a lot in my, my daily life. So I think it's partly just rooted in our, national collective psyche and and that you're not supposed to um, show off you're not supposed to be different from the the herd or show that you're doing better than others it, it would be bad taste uh, it would not be proper so um, for many Finnish people thankfully less these days because uh, young people of course are much more in touch with with what's happening outside of Finland and and hopefully also it will influence in the long term but it's really standing out from the crowd has been one of our biggest fears. I was just looking up the the shoot for the moon expression. And to be fair, it's from a book called The Power of Positive Thinking. So this is a particularly optimistic take on uh, uh, in, in English. So I don't think, no, if necessarily all uh, all English speakers are quite that optimistic or maybe so, so different from, uh, so starkly different from Finnish in that respect. But certainly there is no culture in the U.S. at least, and, and I think to, safe to say in much of the English-speaking world, there's no culture of not trying to stand out from the crowd. Individualism and like kind of breaking, breaking from the pack is certainly encouraged. Do you think it is that this pessimistic approach has an influence on, also on social interactions? I'm asking because I have a good friend of mine who has lived in Helsinki for 10 years. He's from Italy and uh, he wasn't able to, you know, to have many Finnish friends uh, out of, you know, I don't know, he describes it as a cultural uh, difference that, you know, was difficult to break through. 
Absolutely. I, I think you make a very good point. Um, yes, I mean, there is some truth to the stereotypes that we are all quite quiet, reserved, sometimes maybe even described as cold. Um, for us, it's politeness to not interfere, to, to not uh, be too overbearing. Um, looking people in the eye, um, you would do that if you know the person well. Um, hugging or, or these uh, bisous that, that exists in the French cultures, for example, for us, that would be, be a nightmare. You, you politely shake hands, of course, pre-COVID times. Um, there were some jokes at the time when, when the restrictions came on the a number of meters you have to have between people that uh, in Finland, we the, the official limit was less than what we normally tend to keep. Um, that panicked people up. So there is some truth to that. I think we're also slightly introverted. Um, we find it sometimes maybe difficult to participate uh, in conversation with, with people who come from cultures which are much more lively, much more talkative. Um, because we feel a bit, uh, we don't simply know, we wait for people to finish talking before we would start talking. But of course, that break might never come and, and we end up silent. So it's a bit of a learning thing for us as well, I feel in Finland to, to start seeing different cultures as like, it's not just our way, but there are different parts that we can take from other cultures to communicate better and, and come, come to come off as a bit more friendly, friendly nation, because I think we are. We're very helpful, we are very loyal, uh, we are very trustworthy and reliable. So there would be a lot, lot that I would like to at least share if I would uh, meet people from other countries in Finland. So let's go on with the last idiom of the day. I'm not going to try this time but the English translation would be do one's bit. Can you, can you tell us something more about this, Iris? Yes, so in Finnish we would say kanta kortensa keko, which literally means to carry one's straw to the pile. I can't say that I would know this for a fact, but to me it, it refers back to this idea of, again, the agrarian culture, uh, communal work, which would be quite common in, in the fields again. You would need to harvest and you would have uh, different houses helping each other out. So, because of course, if you have five people working versus 10 people working, you can do much more in, in a much uh, smaller amount of time. Um, which again is quite interesting because it really talks about that kind of reliable work focus attitude that we often have tended to have. But also oftentimes I feel as Finns ourselves, we think of our cultures as being very focused on the immediate nuclear family. We don't have this kind of idea that you have a block full of neighbors and you all are almost like the family. However, here it's quite contradictory to that idea because here indeed the whole idea is we work together to achieve something and normally it's or let's say always um, when you talk about communal work which in Finnish then is called talkot there is no payment made it's almost basically we help you and you help us so it's more to do with this kind of creating a bond working together than money exchanging hands so in I guess like not ancient but historical Finland, it primarily comprises of agrarian villages. So like would people live in a, a cluster of a few hundred houses or were people really just living like on their own and then they would just interact with other families at like specific instances? 
Yeah, no, that's. A, I think that's a good question. But what I want to highlight is also this isn't like a thing of the past in a way. So, for example, my family we would do a lot of of dalcot uh, because we would have forest we would need to cut, and we would have the the logs to take. So, and then we would do that, and we would help our neighbors who would have helped us with something else. Um, also, I think it's important to keep in mind that even up into until the the nineteen sixties, for example, in Helsinki, in many many locations you would not have indoor plumbing in houses so when we think of of even the 1960s which wasn't that far away in Finland versus some other bigger cities in Europe it's quite a stark contrast um, so indeed we don't have to even go back to the ancient times to have this kind of more agrarian more uh, more uh, focused uh, mindset but it's true uh, especially on the countryside uh, because again we don't have a lot of people for a massive amount of land that we have in, in Finland, you would of course have these clusters and you would probably have a couple of farmhouses, you would have tenants working in those farmhouses and so on, but that goes of course much further back uh, even before our, our independence. Can this idiom refer to um, following the rules, following the law? That's a good point. I, I think it could. Um, if I would use that idiom myself these days because it's again it's all these idioms that we've discussed today are all existing everybody uses them I would still use it in the context context of I've done my part I, I've done what I let's say there's a group work at school I would say okay I've done my part um, I, I've done my my bit um, it doesn't really apply to the, the law context because for us the way we see the law is uh, there's no doing one spit for the law, you just have to follow the law. And of course, I don't know if you know, but for us, uh, even red traffic light is law. Um, you shall not pass when it is red. So uh, we're quite, quite specific about certain things like that. All right, so on this episode, we are introducing a brand new quick segment to Idiots with Idioms called the Idiom Lightning Round. And so in this, segment I will or Marcello and I will read out several Finnish idioms to Iris and she will provide a little bit of context or a little bit of uh, background on each of these idioms. Iris are you ready? Yes. All right idiom number one to vanish like a fart in the Sahara. This is an interesting one I have no clue where it comes from, but it is quite widely used. It literally means something disappears so well that you could just not find it again. This is like my favorite idiom in the history of all idioms. <laughs> <laughs> Let's jump right away in the second to the second one, uh, to test the eyes with a stick. So that uh, dates of us um, probably back to the times when uh, the lakes would freeze more often and you would need to know if, if it's safe to go on it because you would do fishing or you would do uh, skating on, on the ice. It also means a situation where you, you're kind of, um, let's say you're working with someone, but you are not quite sure what their mood is and you might need to test a little like, okay, is it a good time to actually ask someone for a favor or maybe it's better to wait. So that's when you would be uh, poking a little bit uh, with the stick on the ice. Idiom number three. Like a bear shot in the behind. Oh yes, this is a good one. And this is something that I I um, widely use. However, I must say that I use a, a slightly less um, polite polite word than behind. Um, it means someone is extremely angry. 
um, you can imagine a bear when they get shot, um, someone who, who really can't uh, be reasoned with logic. Um, so yes, don't shoot the bear in the behind, my advice. Another video, this, this one I, I found really, really nice, a spoon in every soup. Yes, that means um, when you are someone who really have, have your fingers in everything, you're, you're really busy and you're, you're trying to do multiple things at, at one go, It can also be said both positively and a bit, bit negatively if you have a person who is really a bit of a busy body and, and tries to be everywhere, but doesn't really complete tasks, for example. Okay, the next idiom, a face like the sun in Nantali. Yes, so Nantali is a kind of a beach, uh, not a beach, but a um, portside small town in the Western Finland. Um, it means that someone is extremely happy. So they're face or their green is as happy as the sun in, in Natalie. The funny thing is I have never been able to determine whether Natalie is somehow more sunny uh, town than, than the other towns in Finland because of course it's, it's quite dark and gray most of the year. So um, not entirely sure if that's, that's accurate. But if somebody is very, very happy, then their face would be like the sun in Natalie. This is a uh, this is free advertisement for the city of Nantali. If everybody, if anyone is listening from the city and would and would be interested in more collaboration, please let us know. Let's go with the with another one. It's dark in the attic. So that means um, literally that you're stupid or you're a bit uh, perhaps not at your brightest um, because there isn't much light in your brain area. Mm. A bit dim. A bit dim, yes, that's a, that's the right way to, to say. Second to last idiom of the lightning round is to get caught in the fight. That's a very interesting one. Um, and again, it's something that we use frequently. I use it frequently, but I rarely stop to think what it really, really means. Um, so literally it means you are getting caught on top of the, the fight. So it means you have done something which you shouldn't have done. Um, whether it's slightly illegal or morally questionable, um, but you're getting caught. So that's when we would, uh, would use that expression. It's now time for the game that you all have been waiting for, the Idiot's Gambit. Ethan is going to tell you an idiom and provide three different stories. They are quite articulated and Ethan has, ma has made a, a great effort in order to make them believable. Try your best to understand which one is the right story behind the idiot. Iris, are you ready to play the idiot's gambit? Yes, I'm ready to prove I am an idiot. <laughs> All right, today's idiom for the idiot's gambit is the idiom currying favor, which of course means to do something usually to a superior in order to gain goodwill uh, and to gain their favor. Here's story number one. In July of 1497, Vasco da Gama arrived in India and bought spices and goods back to Portugal that had rarely been seen in Europe. These spices were exceedingly valuable. In England, a pound of pepper was equivalent to two days wages. A pound of cloves cost five days wages and a pound of saffron cost a month's wages. The English nobility was always looking for ways to ingratiate themselves with the royalty. So it became common practice for noblemen and noblewomen to hand deliver gifts of spices to the king or queen. One such king, Edward VI, had a particular affinity for curry dishes 
And as the spices provided by the nobility often ended up as part of one of his curries, the term currying favor came to be used for delivering spices to him and eventually all forms of gift giving for the purpose of building goodwill. So that's story number one. Story number two. Curry is a dish originating from the Indian state of Rajasthan. And I want to be clear, this is not curry, it's curry. To this day, some Indians prepare curry and present it to the gods as part of religious ceremonies. In 1667, French explorer Jean Chardon visited India, where he saw this practice taking place. He asked what was going on, and his interpreter said that the people were giving karhi for the gods' favor. However, Chardon mistook the word karhi for curry, and in his 10-volume book, Voyage de Monsieur le Chevalier Chardon, he introduced the term currying favor to refer to the practice of presenting the gods with karhi. So he thought that the Indians were trying to curry favor. Finally, story number three. The French poem Roman de Fauvel was penned in the early 1300s. It focused on the wily horse Fauvel, who connived his way to becoming an important figure in the French royal court. The poem attempts to satirize and criticize the clergymen and lower nobility of the kingdom of France, as they are so desperate for the horse's affections that they brush the horse nonstop head to toe. As currying was another name for brushing at the time, the expression currying favel arose, remember the horse's name is favel, and eventually morphed into currying favor. So favel, the word favel, the name of the horse eventually somehow got switched for favor. So here are your options. Edward VI really liked curry. The word curry was mistaken for the word curry in a mistake of uh, transliteration. And finally, the horse named Fauvel was brushed head to toe. This is a tough choice. Um, all stories are very believable. I believe every one of them could be real. The first one tempts me because it sounds the more logical one. But what I've learned with idioms, it's hardly ever logic. Um, and the third one sounds so kind of insane with the horse and everybody wanting horses' affections. It could be true just because it sounds so unbelievable. Um, so I will say the horse. That is the correct answer. It is? That, believe it or not, this is the most ridiculous story of an idiom uh, that I've ever I've ever heard. The there's from this like 14th century. French morality poem, and the poem is trying to communicate that the people of France are so, like, so sycophantic, like they're so desperate for the affection of upper nobility and the royalty that they'll do anything, including like throwing themselves at this evil horse. The horse is evil, by the way, and the poem takes a pretty strange turn at the end. And at the end, it's revealed that the horse is the Antichrist. And, or is like a harbinger of the Antichrist. Anyway, that's correct. So currying favor uh, was about brushing this horse, which was called currying Fauvel. And over time, Fauvel became favor uh, in, in common parlance. Is Voyage de Monsieur le Chevalier Chardin a thing or you uh, made it up? That's a real book. Yeah. <laughs> so 
So to clarify the other stories, uh, curry as a dish in Europe didn't exist until the 18th century. So there was no way for Edward VI, who was a 16th century king, to be super fond of curry. So that one has some truth in it, but, but we didn't really have curry in Europe yet. There was a French explorer, Jean Chardon, who visited India, but there was no interaction between him and, and curry or curry or currying favor. But he did write a 10 volume tome called uh, Voyage de Monsieur le Chevalier Chardon. Well, Iris, thank you very much for playing The Idiot's Gambit. Uh, you have passed The Idiot's Gambit, so you are, you are no longer an idiot uh, or you are proven you're not an idiot. Unfortunately, since you've proven you're not an idiot, we now have to kick you off of idiots with idioms because you're no longer, you've proven that you cannot participate in a show about idiots talking about idioms. You've graduated to smart people with idioms. Thank you, thank you. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you very much, everyone, for joining us for another episode of Idiots with Idioms, the home of the Carpathian Hare. We hope that you enjoyed, and please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Thank you very much to our guest, Iris, and as always, my co-host, Marcello De Giorgi. Thank you, Ethan. Thank you, Iris. And thank you for listening to all of you. I hope you learned something new about Finland, and I hope to have you once again in our next episode. Podcast with my friends